Amen. So our word today is servanthood or, or servant. Um, when I think about servanthood, when I think about people that embody that uh, servant spirit, um, there's so many here at Trinity, there's so many different names I could name. Uh, but one person I think of is Bill Airy. And uh, whenever I, r- I drive up to the shop, the after-school program on Tuesdays and Thursdays, you can count on Bill is going to be there pushing a broom, and he's going to be you know, sweeping off the sidewalk, sweeping off the, uh, the basketball court. He's going to be there uh, to open up. He's going to stay late to lock up. Um, you know, uh, Bill's life dream probably wasn't to hang out with uh, teenagers in an after-school program, but yet he's found an area uh, one, uh, one area where he, where he serves, and he serves beautifully. And you can always count on him. If there's a need, he's going to meet that need. Another name that comes to mind is Ken Foster, and it's always funny whenever Ken's not here on a Sunday, uh, it's kind of like running around like a, like a circus trying to figure out how do we get the heater to work? How do we, you know, how do we unlock the doors? And, and uh, who's taking up the offering? And, you know, last week uh, I, was, I was leaving uh, after the service, and Ken and I met each other in the hall. We were the last two, I think, in the building, and, and I said, Ken, and thanks for everything you do. He said, oh, I don't do anything. And I said, man, you do. I said, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't uh, uh, keep my head on straight if it wasn't, if, if it wasn't for you. He said, no, nah, I don't do anything. And I walked in the, in the kitchen, and I just happened to say under my breath, now, why did I come in here? And he said from down the hall, you were going to get something from the fridge. It's like, yeah, that's, see, that's, that's exactly what I'm talking about. Like, that's what I'm talking about. And, and, and that's how the body of Christ is intended to function. Um, there's no superstars in the body of Christ. In the body of Christ, uh, we, we, we use the gifts that God's given us, and, 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 uh, and, and we need each other, and we rely on each other, and where one of us is strong, another's weak. Where one of us is weak, another one is strong. And, and um, you know, just thinking about you know, the, God's picture uh, of the body of Christ, God's uh, vision for the church that we get in, in, in the New Testament. I'm reminded of, um, of, of a movie called To End All Wars. You may have seen it's the movie that came out before that called uh, The Bridge on the River Kwai. Um, and uh, it's based on a book by Ernest uh, Gordon. And uh, this book was actually given to me by another great servant in our church. Janie uh, Davis gave me this book. And, and um, and, and, and Ernest Gordon was a prisoner of war in a Japanese internment camp during World War II. He was a Scottish um, uh, Highland uh, soldier, and, and he was taken captive and, 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 and forced into this POW camp where they, they built this railroad of death, and thousands of, of Allied POWs died. Um, but during that time of, of imprisonment as a POW, Ernest Gordon came to know Christ and, 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 and to serve Christ. He went all in with Jesus. And, and he talks in, in one chapter here, he talks about the church that was formed there in the POW camp. And he calls the chapter the church without walls. And he, and he begins by saying there's three different kind of churches uh, three different possible definitions of the church. One is kind of a brick and mortar, stru- mortar structure with steeples and 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 stones. Um, the other is the church composed of creeds and catechisms and and believing the right things. He says, finally, there's the church of the spirit, called out of the world to exist in it by reason of its joyful response to the initiative of God's love. Such a church had the atmosphere not of a law court, not of a classroom, but of divine humanity. It existed wherever Christ's love burned in the heart of man. The physical temple and the doctrinal affirmation are both necessary, but are both dead without the church that is communion, the fellowship of God's people. He says, our church was the church of the Spirit. 
And he describes it, it's a church without walls because it's literally just this little, bear, this little area in the jungle carved out in the middle of this POW camp. Our church was a church of the Spirit. It was not hidden in a corner nor off on the periphery. It was the throbbing heart of the camp, giving life to the camp and transforming it from a mass of individuals into a community. From the church, we received the inspiration that made life possible, the inbreathing of the Holy Spirit that enabled men to live better lives, to create improvements for the good of others, and to make kind neighbors. The fruits were in evidence around us, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness. Um, it's interesting that Gordon um, doesn't talk about the programs that the church in the POW camp offered. He doesn't talk about the, ter- the, the temperature of the thermostat or, or how funny the pastor was. Uh, he talks about the fruit of the Spirit that accompanied this gathering. You know, when you're desperate, when you're in a POW camp and you're desperate, you don't go to church uh, looking for the trappings of religion. You don't go to church. You, don't gather, you, you gather as the church, as the called out people of God. And, and, and the church in this POW camp, he said, wasn't just kind of this uh, thing out there on the periphery. It was the throbbing heart of the community. It gave the community purpose and gave the community identity and, and who, uh, who, as the overflow of its worship, it, 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 it improved the community and made the community better. And that's what God intends the church to be. That's what God created the church to be. And, and there's something that inhibits that from happening and that enemy that prevents the church from being what God called it to be as the enemy of consumerism. The enemy that says, no, but I want to make it about me. Um, and that, that attitude of consumerism, that destroys the beautiful servant nature that God created the church to be. And, and I asked this a couple of weeks ago, and I want to ask it again. When we gathered this morning, or when we gather usually, do we gather with the question burning in our hearts, who is going to serve me today? Or who can I serve today? When you wake up in the morning, tomorrow, are you going to wake up with the question burning in your heart, who is going to serve me today? Or who am I going to serve today? That, that, that affects the whole trajectory of our lives. I want to read again uh, from Francis Chan, Letters to the Church. I read this a couple weeks ago, but it's so good, I'm going to read it again. He says, imagine gathering a group of people. He says, imagine gathering with a group of people who are trying to outserve one another. Have you ever been in a room filled with humble people who count others more significant than themselves? It's anything, he says, but burdensome. When servants gather together, everyone is built up. No one hates consumerism more than God because that mentality keeps the church from having the vibrancy he intended. He says, don't give up on the dream. The church doesn't have to remain a group of needy people complaining that they haven't been fed well enough. It really can become a group of servants who thrive in serving. Don't give up on the dream. The the, the church really can be what God God, uh, lays out for it to be in the New Testament. That's the only thing that that keeps me getting up every morning is I know that God hasn't given up on me. I know God hasn't given up on you. I know God hasn't given up on his church. And rather than like... You know, I think if we, if we think about discipleship, I think Shan does a great job in, in his book, Letters to the Church, of, of presenting what discipleship really is all about. Like, rather than looking at discipleship as, uh, you know, being able to check all the boxes and know all the answers so that I can sit comfortably in my pew for the rest of my life, what if discipleship is this idea of, if God wants to raise you up in such a way that he could drop you in any jungle or any desert in this world where there's not a gospel witness and you could plant a church there and shepherd a church there and grow a church there, wouldn't that be cool? If every member in this church was discipled to the point where we could go anywhere on this earth 
and plant a gospel church. I mean, isn't that the goal? Maybe not. Maybe it's not the goal. Maybe the goal is coffee and donuts, right? We're nailing it then, right? What's the goal of all this? Is that you are equipped to make disciples of the nations here and to the ends of the earth. If it's not about that, what's it about? And so we got to continually, day by day, flip that switch in our heads from it's about me to it's about something so much bigger than me. And so today our word is servant. And as we, as we, we think about this, this word servant, what I want us to see from Romans 15 is that true servanthood is rooted in Christ's character. And it results and is revealed in praying, giving, and going. And that's what we're going to see in Jesus, and that's what we're going to see in the Apostle Paul here in Romans chapter 15. So let's dive into chapter 15, verse 1. He says, We who are strong have an obligation or a debt to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. So Paul's still in this uh, thought line that we were in last week where he says, Don't argue about opinions. Don't argue about... um, you know, don't, don't cut each other out of, uh, out of your life over non-essential things. There's a few things to really draw the line about. These essentials of the gospel. Christ died. Christ is risen for the forgiveness of our sins. Christ is returning. He says, those are the essentials. But all these other non-essential things and matters of opinion that we typically fight about, he says, you know, don't, don't make as big of a deal out of those things. Um, welcome one another, he told us last week. And he's still in that frame of mind. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good and to build him up. For Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. And so... So Paul says that a mature believer, a person strong in faith, does not live for themselves, does not live to please themselves, does not wake out of bed, wake up in the morning saying, how can the world serve me today? But yet our flesh nature, that's exactly what our flesh nature wants is to be served. But somebody that's growing in Christ, putting on the character of Christ, is becoming a person who exchanges consumerism for servanthood. All right, And so true servanthood is rooted in Christ's character. Paul doesn't just say you should be a servant. He grounds it in who is Jesus. What has Jesus done for us? He says Jesus did not please himself. But he took the reproaches, he took the curses, he took the wrath that we deserved. Verse 4, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. So that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to come back to that prayer later. He says, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Again, this was our big idea last week. Welcome each other just like Jesus welcomed you. And then he says in verse 8, for I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. So Paul says, Jesus became a servant. Of all the words Paul could have used to describe Jesus, of all the one-word summaries, he said Christ became a servant. That's the word that that summarizes best um, what Jesus did for us. He became a servant. He says he became a servant to the circumcised. In other words, he came to the Jews. He came to his own people, and he fulfilled the promises that God had made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But it didn't stop there. He goes on to say he threw open the door so that Gentiles, non-Jewish people, could come in. And what Paul's been telling us through the whole letter to the Romans 
is that God's big plan in Christ is to make, give you an opportunity and me an opportunity to be made right with God, but also to become part of this worldwide family of God that's joined together by faith in Christ. And, and so he says, Christ became a servant. Paul grounds our call to servanthood in the character of Jesus. Um, and so I think one of the most powerful statements Jesus makes in the Gospels uh, is found in the Gospel of Mark, verse 40, uh, 10, verse 43 uh, and through 45. He says, whoever wants to become great among you must also be, must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus says, the whole reason I came was not to be served, was not to live for myself, was not to live for what I wanted, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Um, there's, a, uh, I, there's so many great memes, you know, going around, like, and people, people I, I, I love see, look, looking at memes on, uh, on social media, and then people will text me a meme if they find one that's really good, and there's, there's, I was going to put some up there, but look, there's some great ones out there. I don't want to, I don't want to uh, discriminate against any, um, but I saw one this last week that really, really made me think, and, and you've probably seen it too, it, it, it says, what would you do, something along these lines, what would you do if you knew you had 24 hours to live, um, and, and, it, and you know, maybe you'd go partying, maybe you'd spend all your money, maybe you'd you know, have a big blowout. It says, Jesus knew, and he washed feet. Man, isn't that like a powerful truth? Like John 13 tells us that on the, on the last night of Jesus' life, knowing that he was going to be betrayed, knowing that he was going to go to the cross, he has this meal with his disciples. And then after the meal, he takes off his outer robe, and he bends down, and he does the work of a slave, and he washes his disciples' feet. And they, they have no idea what he's doing. They have no idea why. And he says, a new commandment I give to you, as I've loved you, so you love one another. He says, I've washed your feet, you wash one another's feet. Jesus, in wanting to communicate to his disciples and to us what he's all about, he took the role of a servant. He, he, he took the role of a servant. Uh, Philippians 2, in Philippians 2, Paul lays this out so beautifully, and it's, and, and, and it's application for us as a church. He says, um, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, he says, uh, if there's any affection and sympathy, fill full my joy. Complete my joy by being of the same mind. Doesn't mean we think the same thing about everything, but we think, we think the same thing about the important things. Having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Now think about your marriage, if you're married right now. How would this verse transform your marriage? If you didn't live as if you were the most important person, but as if somebody else would. How would this transform your friendships? How would this transform your life group? How would this transform your, your, your relationship with your coworkers? Verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, and then, and then he tells us what Jesus did, who though he was in the form of God, from all eternity he was equal to God. He did not regard his equality with God, his being equal with God. He didn't hold on to it with a clenched fist. But he, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. Um, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the death of a cross. 
And for this reason, God has highly exalted uh, him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. All the ways that Paul could have described Jesus, he describes him as a servant. So when the Scripture commands us to be a servant, we do it because that's who Jesus is. And if you know Jesus, Christ is living in you. True servanthood is rooted in Christ's character. And then, and then true servanthood it has some results in our lives. It looks a certain way. It takes a certain shape. And, and I want to read to you beginning in verse 20 here, Romans 15, verse 20. Paul lays out kind of his plan. He says, Thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. So Paul has this ambition. He has this desire to go preach the gospel where it hasn't been yet. He quotes the Old Testament, those who have never been told of him will see, those who have never heard will understand. This is the reason why I've so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any, have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain, and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. So Paul wants to visit Rome. He wants to go visit the Roman church in person, and he wants to do that on his way to Spain. Now, why Spain? Spain was like the, the Wild West of this time. This was the westernmost part of the world that Paul can imagine, and he says, I want to go there. I want to take the gospel there. I don't want to just stay where the gospel's already been named. I want to take the gospel to new places and new frontiers. And several people over the last couple weeks have asked me and Ashley and, and, and the Muncies and Travis, why would you guys want to go spend time in Iraqi Kurdistan? Like, what, what's that about? And there's a lot of reasons people ask that question, and there's probably a lot of answers to the question. But one really compelling answer to the question is found in this statistic. Iraqi Kurdistan is composed of 98%. 98% of the population of Iraqi Kurdistan is Sunni Muslim. 2% is Shia Muslim. There, there's not enough Christians in Iraqi Kurdistan to make up 1%. Are there lost people here in Sweetwater? You bet, you, you bet there are. And we're all, we're, it's all of our job to reach them. But there's also a big world out there. And there's places where there's, there's hardly any or no believers. And it's our call to, to be part of reaching people for Christ right here and, and, and to be part of reaching people for Christ around the world. And Paul said, man, I'm going to go. I want to go to Spain. And Paul is modeling the character of Jesus Christ. Jesus left heaven and came to us. Paul says, I want to I go to Rome and I want to press beyond Rome to the ends of the earth. I want to go name Christ where he hasn't been named. He goes on to say in verse 24, Hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and be helped in my journey there by you once I've enjoyed your company for a while. Verse 25, at present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints of Jerusalem. Another thing that um, servants do is servants give. I've, I've loved our, our, our life group has started the study um, uh, the Treasure Principle with Randy Alcorn. It's on Right Now Media. You all have access to it. If you don't know how, ask. Um, the Treasure Principle, Randy Alcorn makes this great point. He says, that, he says, we can't take our treasure with us, but we can send it on ahead. Um, you, we try to accumulate all this stuff, and we're not going to take it with us, but, we, but as we give it, as we're generous with our finances, as we invest it in God's work, we send it ahead of us, and we build up treasure in heaven. And Paul said, I'm going, and I'm, I'm, he's been taking a collection of the saints for, for, for the poor people in Jerusalem. He's been going to all of these uh, predominantly Greek churches, and he's been taking up offerings, and he's going to take that offering to Jerusalem and help needy people there. From the beginning of the church, when one part of the church has thrived and another part of the church has struggled, 
we've taken up offerings, and we've sent aid to those that are in need. Like, we didn't create this. Samaritan's Purse didn't create this. This is, this is the ministry of the Apostle Paul that we see in the book of Acts. And so part of how we serve is by going. Part of how we serve is by giving. We give when that offering plate comes around. We give online. We give when a friend's going to a mission trip. We give to support uh, missions. We give to support our local church. Generosity is part of how we serve. And then uh, Paul goes on to say, uh, verse 28, When therefore I have uh, completed this and have delivered to them what's been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. So there's three different places in this chapter that Paul prays for the Romans, but he also asks them to pray for him. One of the greatest ways you can serve others is by praying for them. And I know that's like, okay, tell us something we don't know, Matt. But like, think about that. When somebody has a need, um, do we typically think about prayer as a way to serve or prayer as maybe God show me how I can really do something, okay? I can just pray, like, like that's like a backup option. Man, definitely prayer will result in, in probably other action. It may result in going, it may result in giving, but, but prayer is servanthood in and of itself. And so think about your one, the person that hopefully you're, you're praying for and encouraging and, 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 and trying to lead to and introduce to Jesus. And don't forget that, that the work is done, the, the majority of the heavy lifting for that, that one is done in prayer. God, open the eyes of my friend, open the eyes of my spouse. I pray that light would penetrate into their mind and their heart. You would open, open them up to you. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would just stir in this person's life and, and take them from darkness to light. Don't forget that prayer is servanthood. Who are you serving in prayer right now? Um, how are you serving our church through prayer right now? And, 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 and to kind of continue on that, I want to zero in on three prayers that Paul prays for the Romans and for us, and then we're gonna, and then we're gonna get out of here. All right, so let's go back to chapter fifteen, verse five. Three prayers rooted in God's character. Fifteen, verse five. Paul says this: "May the God of endurance and encouragement." Your translation say the God of may say the the God of patience and comfort. Endurance is this idea of patient endurance. May the God of endurance. And encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, so much here in this prayer, but part of what Paul is saying is that something the Spirit of God does in the church is he brings us to unity. That doesn't mean we all think the same politically. It doesn't mean we all... Um, you know, here Laurel or Yanni, it doesn't, mean, it doesn't mean we all like the same kind of pizza, but it means that we're in deep agreement on who is Jesus and what's he about in this world, okay? And we can, and we can be united in that and, and strive together in that. And, and, and otherwise, like if I have a serve me attitude in the body of Christ, I'm like somebody that's just like playing an instrument or, or, you know, totally out of key. Or I'm somebody in a choir and I'm like singing my own song and it just doesn't even fit. And, and, and I love, I want to quote Francis Chan again. He says, sometimes the most loving thing we can do is to teach people that joy will come only when they stop screaming for attention and save their voices for the throne. And maybe there's just... Maybe, maybe we're so sick and tired of screaming for attention and not getting the results that we want. 
And God just wants us to get to a place where we will just join the chorus of praise that's bringing worship and honor and glory and just be lost in all creation, bringing honor and glory to God. And as we do that, that's the most significant thing we're ever going to do. Paul says, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant that you live in harmony. Harmony and glory to God are the results of this prayer. But look at what he says. He says, the God of endurance. And I don't know about you, but there's times that trying to serve others can be tiring. Do you ever get tired? you ever need endurance? Um, There's times that it just maybe doesn't feel worth it. Um, And Paul says that we need endurance. Now, I love the way Paul Tripp says this. He says, let me state it plainly. Your hope is not to be found in your willingness and ability to endure but in God's unshakable, enduring commitment to never turn from his work of grace. Your hope is not found in your ability to grit your teeth and keep going. Your hope is found in the reality that God is a God of endurance. God is characterized by endurance. God will not give up on you. Isn't that good news? God's not going to quit. God's not going to stop until, if, if you know him, until you're conformed to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. God is characterized by endurance. Godly endurance isn't just, okay, I'm going to grin and bear this person until they're out of the room. That's Matt's endurance. That's your endurance. God's endurance is, man, I'm going to engage with this person lovingly and gladly because that's how Jesus Christ has engaged me. Um, And so I want you to bring to mind somebody that you need endurance with. Who's somebody that you know um, that you need God's help? Um, Maybe there's a relationship that's strained. Maybe it's your spouse or your child. We just talked to God about it right now. Maybe it's your one. I don't know who it is. God, thank you that you're the God of endurance. God, if I'm going to serve The way you've called me to serve, I need endurance. So through my relationship with you, I just pray that I would receive that endurance from you. You you tell me in your word that endurance is formed as I suffer. I don't want to suffer. But God, whatever it takes to develop endurance and character and hope in me, I want to surrender to that. God, give me endurance as I deal with who is that person. Just put their name in that blank. How do you need endurance personally? God, help me endure this. Talk to him about it. Take a a minute right now. How do you need the God of endurance and encouragement to show up in your life? Men, I don't know about you, but I'm thankful that at the end of the day, my success or failure as a Christian does not hinge on my ability to endure, but God's commitment to endure. Next next prayer is found in verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that the power of the Holy Spirit may abound in hope. The God of hope. He, He describes God first as the God of endurance. Now he describes him as the God of hope. Why can you have hope? How can you have hope? Jesus has said it is finished. He's, he's done for you on the cross what you could not do for yourself. He says that he's going to make all things new one day. Do you need to be reminded of that? It's 
It's not always going to be a mess. The God of hope is with you. Just, just take a second and cry out to the God of hope. God, I, I, here's an area of my life where I feel hopeless. We just give that to him now? Give him your hopelessness? Here's a person I'm feeling hopeless about. Here's a relationship I'm feeling hopeless about. I'm feeling hopeless about myself, about my usefulness. Thank you, God, that you're the God of hope. By your spirit, would you do in me what only you can do? Will you help me to set my hope on you? And finally, verse 33, may the God of peace be with you all. Peace is what we forfeited in the Garden of Eden. Shalom, restoration, and it's what we find in Christ. Romans 5.1 says, if you've been justified by faith, you have peace with God. You know anybody that needs peace? How about you? You need peace? We just talk to the God of peace now? He's a God of peace. Like, peace is his deal. Father, thank you that you are the God of peace. Oh, just as I say that, just as I say that, I start to feel a little bit of peace. You're the God of peace. Thank you that you're with me. I pray that, that I would not be anxious for anything, but that I would, with, in all things, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let my requests be made known to you. And I thank you that your peace can rule and guard in my heart and my mind through Christ Jesus. Thank you for peace. Having a, uh, an attitude of a servant requires endurance. It requires hope. It requires peace. And all of those things are yours in Christ. Don't forget that. Don't forget that. And as we, as we close, having a servant's heart doesn't mean everything works out for you. I think sometimes we, we set ourselves up for disappointment. We say, I'm going to... I'm going to serve in this role or at this job or in this marriage for this long, and I know God's going to work it all out. He will work it all out, but it, but it may not be like by next Thursday. It may not even be by next year. I'm going to give you two examples. Jesus is the perfect embodiment of servanthood. Jesus went to the cross. He didn't avoid the cross. Paul most likely never made it to Spain. And when he did get to Rome, it was in chains. It was not what he thought would happen. He served. His motives were good. But everything did not work out the way he wanted. But God was with him. The God of endurance. The God of hope. And the God of peace. Being a servant doesn't mean your plans are going to prosper. But being a servant does mean that God, the God of endurance is with you, the God of hope is with you, and the God of peace is with you. As the band comes up, servanthood isn't a way to manage God or get what we want. It's not a con to get promoted. It's just who Jesus is. And if Christ is in you, it's going to be who you become. Day by day, little by little, less about me, more about him. Less pleasing self, more pleasing those uh, that God has put in my path. And so the band's coming up. I just I ask you to, to sit with a couple of questions. One, do you know the God of endurance? Do you know the God of hope? 
Do you know the God of peace? Do you know him? Not you heard about him in church one time. Do you have a relationship with God?